Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart. And for this episode, I'm actually also the guest. What I have for you is an interview that I recently did on the Steel on Steel podcast with John Loeffler. And he wanted to talk to me about an article I wrote in Real Clear Religion on compassionate border policy, which you can find in the show notes page. And we had a really great conversation for about 30 minutes. The way in which the audio was recorded was not our normal, so it might not be quite as high quality as you're normally hearing, but it's actually pretty good. So you're not going to cringe when you hear it unless you're an audiophile, in which case I'm sorry for probably every episode I've done. Just kidding. No, we have a great audio guy, and he makes me sound better than I do in person, I think. I don't know how I sound because I have headphones on. But I hope you enjoy the interview. I think I did a good job of defending my view on borders and how we should go about it with also a tinge of empathy for those who still struggle with why we should have open borders. So whether you think we should have open borders, closed borders, or some variation in between, I think you'll enjoy the conversation. And let me know what you think. Podcast at libertarianchristians.com if you want to reach out and continue the conversation with me personally or with LCI staff. Let us know what you think. Enjoy the episode, guys. Well, it seems like the border is being overrun again. The Biden administration is trying to deal with it. Although, if you notice, the situation has not changed. Kids are still being put in cages. The difference is the approach that the media have taken to this in terms of what happened during the Trump administration and what's happening now. That's a telltale on then. But in all honesty, whenever we talk about this, I really have some mixed emotions. And we need to look at this whole situation of immigration. We're not the only ones being plagued by it. Europe has obviously dealt with it with large numbers of Islamic immigrants from various Islamic countries. So let's take a look at it from a libertarian and Christian perspective. Okay. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Steel on Steel, taking the 30,000-foot view in economics, politics, and religion from a worldview position. John Leffler here. Steve Schiller is our producer, and Doug Stewart is joining me right now. He's CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute, which is an organization that exists, of according to their words, to make the Christian case for a free society. And he believes libertarianism is the most consistent expression of Christian political thought. He's also co-author of Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. Welcome up to the show, Doug. I have mixed emotions with this whole thing. I'll let you make your case first, and then maybe we'll dissect everything, if yeah. that sounds all right. I have mixed emotions because my birth father, whom by way, to my listeners, I've never met, was an immigrant from Italy. He was born in 1905. My adopted sisters, meaning on the adopted family, were adopted from an orphanage in Munich and naturalized citizens in the United States. My grandfather, adopted side, who lived with us until he passed in 1965, had immigrated from Germany. So I'm well familiar with immigration. And I know our system, having been directly involved with it for the last 36 months of my life, is expensive and broken. So I'm going to kick that off, then I'll let you make your case, and let's see if we get anywhere with this whole thing. 
Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You know, I have gotten into this immigration issue over the last decade, and I've changed my mind on things. I used to be what is probably the quintessential conservative view, which is that we have to have relatively restricted border policy in which the federal government vets people thoroughly or at whatever level seems like a good level to make sure that we don't have terrorists. That's kind of where I was at first. And the more that I began thinking about immigration, the more I did some research. And it's not like I was doing the research. I was reading reports on people who had done research and studies. The more I realized that this is economically a no-brainer for Americans to allow more immigrants in, but also from the scriptures, from just understanding the heart of Jesus, the heart of God, that for Christians, our default posture toward immigrants should be one of welcome and open arms. And I would even add, as Americans, I think that should be also the case. As you opened up there, there's a huge blessing in being around those who are different from us, in being able to love them, interact with them, cooperate with them on the market. It's definitely a win-win when we allow more immigrants and allow more immigration. Now, of course, the obvious initial thought there or rejection is, well, what does that mean for policy? And that's where the conversation can get dicey. But my heart for Christians is that they would essentially have a more open and welcoming posture rather than the default being, well, no, you got to prove yourself before you come here. Or no, you're just a bad person because you live on this other side of an imaginary border. Well, it's not imaginary. It's arbitrary is what I meant to say. So there's just the attitude toward immigrants and immigration that I think Christians ought to change. I think that's biblical. I think it's also based in sound economics. And we can get into some other areas as well. Well, you've just opened up a whole can of worms. But, oh, sure. But, but I guess that's what we do here. You know what was surprising? <laughs> I've had a couple of experiences. We had an estate sale after my father-in-law passed uh, two years, three years ago now. And this car pulls up and he's got a license plate for Chihuahua, Mexico, and he has his wife and beautiful daughter with him, and he's got his stuff loaded in his pickup. And so he's looking for stuff. So he walks over, and of course, I said something stupid like habla espanol. And I'm like, I mean, he's got a Chihuahua license plate. What do I expect him to do? And he said, See, so we then carried out about a 20 minute conversation. I said, How are people treating you here in the United States? And he said, Toward the border, because he comes across through Texas. He said, not necessarily too good, but he said, as soon as you get inland, people are generally pretty good. They don't bother us and they treat us well. Mm -hmm. Outside Monticello a couple of years ago, the fire alarm had gone off. So there are a hundred of us all standing outside waiting while the bomberos came through and tried to fix the place. And this German pair, two guys are standing next to me chattering away. And I never missed the opportunity to practice German. So I started talking with them, you know, sprechen Sie Deutsch, yeah, blah, blah, blah. So off we go. And the guy turns to me, he says, I love America. I've put in 70,000 miles on the road driving this country. I come here whenever I can. He said, Americans are generous to a fault, and they will go out of their way to help you even when you don't ask for it. And I looked at him and I said in German, sind Sie sicher? Are you really sure about that? You know, <laughs> Because you know the struggles we're having here being told that we're a no good, very bad, perfectly awful, horrible, racist country. And right. he said, no, absolutely. He said, compared to what you run into in Europe and places like that, this is a wonderful place. And I think we've forgotten that. All right. So let's dissect. Boy, we have a number of issues. Number one, when people come in, how easy should it be? Number two, what about integration into the culture? Are they just bringing their culture here and their language and forming new enclaves and maybe sending money back to Guatemala or Honduras or whatever? 
Number three, the compassion that you mentioned, because the Bible says we should be compassionate to people, to the sojourner. Don't harass them. Don't make life miserable for them. They're struggling yeah, right. as it is. And I think number four, then what about the crime issue? Like about 21% of the people coming across the border are OTMs, as they call them, other than Mexican, which means really Hispanic. Some of these people are criminals. It's like Castro used to box up all of his criminals and send them across on boats. And I guess number five, the whole process is insanely expensive to do it legally. And yeah. people who are in bad shape can't do it. They just can't pony up that money. They can't. Yeah. Well, you listed five and I forgot what the first two were now at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, the whole issue of making- Where do you want to start? What's the, what's the, what's the biggest uh, Aren't you paying attention to me for with? Pete's sake, Doug? Oh, I know, right? I'm trying to keep it in my head. As I was rattling them off, I'm thinking, I've got to write these down because if I don't, I'll forget them. How open should it be? Is that what you're first? Yeah. How open should we be? How easy should it be? As I said, if I look at my own immediate family, one, two, three, four people are direct immigrants to the country, first generation. Well, I know this is going to shock some people, but I don't need any permission from the state of Maryland, New Jersey, New York, or any other 49 states to travel there. I live in Pennsylvania. There's no border guard making sure that I'm legit. What is keeping me able to travel in the 50 states is the fact that I'm not a criminal. Nobody's chasing me. You know, they haven't found all of my skeletons in the closet. I'm joking, of course. So I'm permitted because I'm a law-abiding citizen. So I would like to see something along the lines of that level of openness between national borders. And I realize that that opens up a whole other can of worms. But let me preface that with this. If you're a law-abiding citizen or can prove that you are or you agree in some fashion to harsher penalties for not being a law-abiding non-citizen, in other words, something like deportation or, you know, you're not allowed to come here or it's severe penalties if you do violate our laws or something like that, then I would say that we should probably pursue something along the lines of that level of openness. I realize that's a huge stretch for most people when I'm talking to them. So I'm in favor of whatever amount of immigration anybody thinks should be restricted. I would say you should probably be about half as restrictive as you think and find a way to resolve the problems that come up with you say, oh, well, if we let in double of what I think should be in the country, that we'd have this problem and that problem. Well, find a different solution because on the margins, you are going to probably solve other problems that are worth solving, such as, you know, how do we accurately target criminal activity or just for that matter, just the average person breaking a law as a non-citizen. At the same time, you're also going back to what I call that default posture toward immigrants. It's like, well, look, the benefit of the doubt is on that mostly peaceful people are coming here. And so if you just prove that, treat people as individuals, send them back maybe, or deal with it a different way, but not do the socialist thing and say, oh, well, there's an identity group called immigrants and look at the 5% or whatever that are criminals. That must be like what they're all like. We all would hate that. I mean, every white person in America right now is, I wouldn't say every, many white persons in America right now are a little uneasy about the fact that being called a white person is a little bit stigmatic. So imagine what it's like to be an immigrant and being able to be like, oh, well, a lot of other people think that I'm a default criminal just because I'm an immigrant. So attaching identities to a whole group based on a very small subset is probably not a wise idea. But back to the openness question, I would say whatever is probably twice as open as you think should be, aim for that and try to solve the problems with what Brian Kaplan calls keyhole solutions, solutions that don't require countermeasures to the problems that people object with. 
ironically, that's the way we used to do it. I mean, people would arrive at Ellis Island. They did get certain physical exams, you know, if they were tuberculosis or things which were really bad diseases yeah. back then that couldn't be cured, that they were turned away. Other than that, it's welcome to the United States and you're on your own. There was no net. All right. Number two, Europe is running into this. The problem of integration into the culture, especially in a day where we have this postmodern idea that all cultures are sort of equal. Nobody should push this culture on that culture, blah, 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 which is an absurdity because it can't exist in reality. You have to have common language and certain cultural norms. Integration. And even in the Bible, you had to integrate up to the point of being circumcised, which was not a really terribly attractive thing for most men back then. <laughs> if you were going to, I'm serious. It's fine if you're eight days old. <laughs> That's right. You'll never remember this. But when you're an adult, remember that was a real serious thing. And you had to do that to participate in certain things of Israel. So integration is, is a serious, and it's not a quote, phobic issue. Even Canadians, I've been told, are getting tired of Pakistani immigrants who just aren't integrating properly into the culture, and they see that. Yeah, I would say this is probably the one issue for me that is hardest to answer. So my answer is going to be somewhat provisional because I do understand the uneasiness that people might have that's not related to some sort of xenophobia. Okay, I do believe that exists. I believe that some people's default attitude toward immigrants is that of xenophobia. Like, I'm not being judgmental. I'm just basically saying that like there is an inherent, I don't know what to do with you. You're different from me. And that sort of inner workings of like, ah, you know what? I'd just rather you not be around me. And so that's just more comfortable for me. So I do believe that kind of thing exists. And I don't mean that in a judgmental sense. It's just a natural thing. Our tribal mentality sort of tends to veer toward. But with respect to the integration and uneasiness, you know, I haven't looked at the latest situation in Europe. It's been a few years. I remember this being a thing during the Obama administration because he was a lot more open on immigration or, or pushing that direction and welcoming of immigrant or refugees. And the European issue came up and even in Canada. Look, I think that there are solutions to that. And I think that there are wise ways in which we could go about making sure that those who want to associate with immigrants don't have to. I'm assuming some libertarian prejudices here on that because I realize that that's, you know, we don't always get to not interact, bake the cake situation front of mind here. But it's a big country. There are ways in which we can move. There are ways in which we can adapt our lives in certain ways. The language thing, I'm not sure I agree with you on. I do understand the reason why a common language would be fine. I don't think there's a problem there. I think that's a potential theoretical problem, but English is the global language. And for Americans, I think that's more of a safe bet than if you're accepting immigrants and refugees in a country that is not predominantly English. But I could be wrong on that with, with some of the data, but I don't think that part of it is, is a huge problem. I don't know if I've thoroughly answered your question. Like I said, this is probably the part where I'm kind of like, yeah, okay, I can see people having a point there. The other thought is, basically, I'm not sure we have a right to tell people to integrate into our culture. Now, I realize that we are here now. And so we're saying, okay, hey, you're welcome here. So we would like you to adopt something from our culture, something from our national values. And I think the fact that they're coming here displays or that they want to come here, let's just presume there's this immigrant across the border and they're asking us, hey, can we come over? And we're saying, yeah, but are you going to adopt some of our values? You don't have to adopt every single one of them, but can you adopt some of our values? And they're like, well, yeah, that's why I'm at your door, not the other door. And so there are some things in which I think we can sort of be a little bit more open-handed with, and we might actually achieve some sort of equilibrium that's not dangerous to whatever people think is threatening American culture. 
Yeah, see, I would challenge both of those. Common languages have always, almost always been important, at least a central backbone language or one or two. Look at the Mm -hmm. problems the Francophones and the Anglophones have had in Canada, especially back in the 1980s. Switzerland's managed to do it where they've had four languages, four principal languages, Italian, French, German, and Romanche, in addition to the fact that virtually every canton speaks its own language. But they still have to have these central backbone languages or you can't communicate. The one of values really troubles me, and it's come to me before because I was talking to a gentleman who was an officer in the Canadian Army. He was Pakistani by birth. He had immigrated legally. But he and I were debating the whole issue of free speech. And I said, the reason he doesn't understand the value of free speech is he didn't grow up here. So if you don't have a common value system, remember that values usually start from elites, goes into the general population, finally into law. How are you going to come up with common laws that everybody will abide by? We have that problem here. We have two major worldviews that are in major collision now in this country, a postmodern neo-Marxism that's been growing for 50 years and the Judeo-Christian traditions. They're both trying to force themselves into law. They are both diametrically opposed. They both can't exist in the same legal space simultaneously. And that's what happens when you erode the foundation of your moral system. So I'm not sure that works. Yeah. I don't know if immigrants are their larger threat. I think the elites are more of a threat. I mean, if you really want to know what's threatening our cultural values, it is the uber liberal elite. They're not even liberal at this point. That's how I'm glad you made that are. point. It's a matter of habit of calling them liberals, but the leftist elite, right. they're not liberal in any sense of the word. And you and I both know what we mean by liberal. We're talking about open values, things like free speech, constitutional rule of law. It's also illiberal to restrict immigrants, too, to bring it back to the 30,000-foot <laughs> topic at hand. But, you know, I understand the cultural thing. I would wonder what it is that, back to your common set of values, is what exactly are those values that are quintessentially American and not necessarily quintessential Judeo-Christian? And some of those are going to overlap, of course. Like free speech is a huge one. A culture that's becoming essentially against free speech is probably one of our greatest threats right now because you have social media companies acting at the behest of governments or in conglomeration with them in some fashion that is threatening free speech in a number of ways. And then you also have actual free speech being violated in other ways. But none of that's coming from immigrants. That's coming from people who have been here for a very long time. Well, you're absolutely right about that. In Europe, it is coming from immigrants. That's the problem. And so it's a potential problem. Yeah. The last thing that that I guess I'm concerned about as far as this goes is the idea of what laws we're going to obey and what laws we're not going to obey. Because you remember when President Trump was elected, we had people and he decided to say, let's enforce the immigration law, which has always been my argument. If you don't like the law, change it immediately. Well, we're a sanctuary city. We're a sanctuary state. We're not going to allow that. And that followed on the heels of allowing marijuana in the various states, which, by the way, I do believe is the purvey of the state, not the federal government. I think so much has been usurped by the federal government that the states need to reassert. But nevertheless, it is the law. Then I said, well, okay, let's see how well this works when the Biden administration comes in and tries to crack down on the right to bear arms. And sure enough, you got the very same answer. Well, if you guys aren't going to obey the immigration laws, why should we obey the firearms laws? So the issue of going against the law, Yeah, well, in America, we have this challenging issue of these competing, rightfully competing hierarchies. That's not even a hierarchy, competing 
institutions that we call governments, and that would be state governments, local governments, sometimes county, municipal governments, and then, of course, the federal government. I am a firm believer that if a state wants to forget the laws or if a city wants to nullify laws that it thinks are unjust, I think it has the right to do that, especially at the state level. You know, nullification has a long and valued history in libertarian thought and also in conservative thought. And if the left would actually investigate nullification a little bit, it actually was very instrumental in freeing many slaves. And so there is that tradition that I think a lot of us forget. And so if there is a city that says, hey, we're going to be a sanctuary city and they're going to defy the federal government, I'm personally in favor of that. And I think they should have the autonomy and freedom to do so. Yeah. You know, your comment about the Biden administration and gun laws, I really, really wish we could have some gun law nullification, not gun law, but gun rights laws, I should call them. So, you know, in terms of enforcing border policy, you know, personally, I would much rather have poorly enforced bad laws than consistently enforced bad laws, because at least to some extent, there's enough loopholes that justice can be found. But yeah, I would say let's rewrite the laws. But that takes about as much time as actually getting in the country, you know, in terms of like, you know, just get in line. Well, everybody knows now, not everybody, but a lot of people have realized now that it's not that easy to just get in line. There is no single line to just get to the back of. And so I think changing the law becomes a convoluted way of doing it. And in an American tradition, changing laws sometimes does happen by one person rebelling and saying, no, I'm not going to live this way or I'm not going to enforce this law. Here locally in my area, there were some local sheriff's offices who said, we're not going to enforce it when businesses don't shut down during lockdowns in 2020. They just said, we're not going to fine you. We're not going to enforce the governor's orders. And so it is a very, I would say a proud tradition nullification is in American policy. You and I could have a like three-hour conversation on this. Yes, we could. No, I, I <laughs> Just absolutely, this, right? I absolutely agree with you on that, that that is the safeguard that we have built into the system, that we can have these contentious relationships between state and federal governments. That's the way it was designed to be. As a matter of fact, the Constitution says anything not specifically given to the federal government, which they have usurped in my mind, calling everything that's wet in the United States under, you know, the navigable waterways of the U.S. and that nonsense that is reserved to the states. It's pretty clear in the Tenth Amendment. And yet even in the movies, you know, when the FBI shows up, we're here now, you guys can all go. Well, it doesn't really quite work like that. All right. So they, they, yeah, So I, right. I really do agree with this ability to nullify. And if you notice, the court system has been warring against jury nullification before and pretty well sort of stampedes juries in given directions. The jury doesn't understand the power that it really has to say, gee, but this judge is just running roughshod over this whole thing. Yeah, my biggest lament during the Trump administration regarding the left is that they did not discover nullification and realize its value. And, and I don't mean that as like anything against Trump or pro-Trump or pro-left or anything like that, but like they had an opportunity to realize that there's a mechanism, a legal mechanism outside of protests, which are legit too, that they could fight against what they thought was unjust, but they didn't. And that's too sad. Well, I have to hand it to you, Doug Stewart, CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute there at libertarianchristians.com. You've made a good libertarian case for the whole thing, which I think is less polarizing than you know, so much is polarized, including disease now has become politically polarizing. And, uh, <laughs> and it seems, but you're right. A lot of sheriffs did just say, I'm not going to enforce that. We had that happen in our county. We're not going to do that. 
Whereas you look at what's going on in Canada, they just shut down. The premier of Ontario has been shutting the place down to the extent of putting up roadblocks between Ontario and Quebec and Ontario and Manitoba. So any closing thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the issue is not easy. Okay. And, you know, I wrote an article for Real Clear Religion that makes it sound like, oh, well, we should just be opening. Well, okay. That's the attitudinal posture toward immigrants that we ought to have, I believe, as Christians and as Americans. But I understand that there is not without their problems, partly because we've created restrictions and you have to unravel certain things. And so those things don't go away overnight. There are definitely concerns that people need to deal with. Earlier on, we talked about how those near the border are a little bit less favorable toward those immigrants than those who live a little bit further north. And there's probably really good reasons for that. There's no judgment here on my part toward people who have legit concerns about the issue of immigration. At the same time, I think we can come up with good keyhole solutions that resolve the problems and concerns that people have without saying no to more immigrants. We are really, really down with respect to the amount of immigration that we have in America that's permitted in America, the quotas that we used to have. It's very significantly down. And America, I mean, if anybody pines for the great old days in America before the left took over or whatever, then you're going to want to live in a world with more immigration. What do you think about the claim that they're taking jobs from Americans? And I do have an answer for that on one side. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I don't know what jobs are heterogeneous. You could go get another job. I don't know. On an economic level, I kind of laugh at that because I'm just like, well, this just seems like an uninformed opinion. And I don't mean to be disparaging toward anybody who makes that claim, but like you can get a different job and there are more jobs to be created. Jobs are not just the zero sum fixed thing out there where there's 300 million jobs for all adults or however many adults are in the U.S. It's not like there's a fixed number of jobs. You can research division of labor and comparative advantage, and you'll easily, within probably an hour's worth of time, realize that immigrants do not pose a threat to taking American jobs. That doesn't mean that they don't threaten some people's jobs, but overall, by and large, in aggregate, they do not. Interesting, a very close friend who um, formerly owned three dairies in the Sacramento Valley in California. And he said, the interesting phenomenon is if you tried to enforce the immigration laws, all of agriculture in California would just implode because nobody else will yeah. take them. Black groups are not taking them. Asians are not taking them. They're getting higher education. The only people who will take them are first generation immigrants. And he said, by the second generation, their kids want nothing to do with it. They want to move up into doing other jobs. And he's really straightforward and honest with me. That, I've had a real insight into what's going on. Well, I have one really tiny comment to make on that is if you take that individual who owns a company, if you believe in property rights and ownership and free association, that person is willingly hiring somebody who's willingly working in exclusion of the idea that they're not here legally, possibly that they are obeying the law and abiding as any citizen would be. And it's like, do you really want to prohibit people from willing cooperative market exchanges? I don't think that's American. I don't think it's Christian either. No, it's not. And, and by the way, our church uh, started a Spanish language uh, service on a don't ask, don't tell basis. Like, we're not interested because this is also an opportunity for evangelism. So well, it, it sure is. It, yeah. it's, a, it's a multidimensional issue. And that's why it's so difficult to deal with in the political slugfest we see going on today. Yeah. Yeah. Brain surgery with a meat cleaver. <laughs> All right. Doug Stewart, CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute there at libertarianchristians.com. Any new books or are you still at Faith Seeking Freedom? That's your current book. Right now, Faith Seeking Freedom is the book that we're promoting. We are working on some follow-up material for it, whether that's in the form of, you know, 
ebooks or volume two or an expanded edition or whatever. That's a year or so down the road. But we've been putting out a lot of content on libertarianchristians.com. Some of them are follow-ups to the book in terms of diving into the topics a little bit more. I have a podcast that we do that we're actually doing some behind the scenes on the book. So yeah, Faith Seeking Freedom is kind of the material to get from us this year. You can get that also at faithseekingfreedom.com. And remember, all the people who appear on the show have the right to offer their materials, even if we don't agree with them. It was interesting hearing a Christian libertarian perspective there at libertarianchristians.com. Some interesting articles there trying to take this apart rather than viewing it through the rancor that's going on in political debate right now. But even Doug pointed out that traditional liberalism has been left behind by the Democratic Party. He didn't say the Democratic, but that's what it is, in favor of greater and greater radicalism, which is what Professor Kessler at Hillsdale University actually predicted was going to happen uh, about 10 years ago was when he made his first prediction that it was going to go that way. A lot of people who call themselves liberals don't understand that, that this is what's happened because they're listening to you-know-who. The whole history of the world is a history of one group pushing in on another group, taking over a certain amount of territory and or mixing. But the fact that we are a mix of people from all around the world is a plus, <laughs> not a negative, even if they arrived here through slavery or unfortunate circumstances, which today we wouldn't tolerate. That's the difference that we have made here in this country. So what do we do about future immigrants? And that's the question. And right now, in the left versus right genre, it's just being slung back and forth. You can't get to an answer because you're so busy opposing each other. All right, that's it for there. Do remember to pray for us for provision and protection. Pray for those suffering for their faith around the world. And at our time when we really need a lot of reform going on here, remember to love absolutely everybody, but pray for governments at all different levels. Till next time, Lord willing, we'll see you. We're at steelonsteel.com. On behalf of producer Steve Schiller, I'm John Luffler, and the program is Steel on Steel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. 